couple of weeks ago, I asked you how many knew who Bob Ezrin and Gerald Butts was. And I think I saw one hand maybe go up for Gerald. There wasn't any hands that went up for Bob Ezrin. But then when I asked you how many of you knew who Alice Cooper and Justin Trudeau were, every hand in the sanctuary shot up. And the fact that all of your hands went up when I said those two people is tribute and a tribute of well done to both Bob Ezrin and Gerald Butts. You see, Bob Ezrin is the one who produced and promoted and in many ways made Alice Cooper. And Gerald Butts was the campaign manager whose job it was to promote Justin Trudeau so that people would get behind him and vote him in as our new prime minister. Their job was to point to someone else, not to direct the attention on themselves. Their job was to have everybody's eyes focused on the person they were promoting. If people would have only known who they were and not the people they were promoting, they would have failed in their job. That was the role of John the Baptist. That is the same thing that John the Baptist was called to do as we see also in today's passage. And so to stay true to John's ministry, as we look at today's passage, we have to make sure that we focus on Jesus and not John. Because his ministry was to point to Jesus. It's easy to get stuck looking at John the Baptist. Or to get stuck looking at the ones pointing to Jesus rather than Jesus himself. Even in John's ministry as he began, that's what people started to do. They started to come to John and were wondering who he was. Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are, are you one of the prophets that's come back? Maybe Jeremiah. Who are you? Give us an answer. And every single time they asked a question, John answered with no. Nope, not that person. Nope, not that one either. Well, then who are you? John says, I am not the Messiah. Now, this probably was not the kind of answer the people were expecting. We don't want to know who you're not. We want to know who you are. What does I am not the Messiah tell us? But what John was doing was pointing people's eyes to someone else. John's I am not the Messiah is essentially saying, I'm not the one you're seeking. I'm not the one that you want to find. I'm not the one that your heart and your hope is after. I'm directing you to someone else. I am the voice shouting in the wilderness, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the one preparing the way for the Lord's coming. We need to understand how the New Testament writers and John himself work when they are referring to the Old Testament. See, when John says this 
from Isaiah 40, verse 3, he is not simply quoting a single verse and trying to pull that out of the Old Testament as one proof text in order to beef up who he is. What John is doing is he is drawing people's attention to a whole idea in the Old Testament. In fact, he is drawing people's attention to Isaiah and Isaiah 40 all the way through chapter 60. His words there are not just a verse. His words there are an introduction to a whole section of Isaiah. And he's saying in those 20 chapters that I am the one preparing the way for this. What is this? Well, in those 20 chapters, we find that here in this section, there is going to be a Savior who is going to come to save God's people. He's going to be a unique Savior in the fact that he's going to be a suffering Savior, as we start to see in Isaiah 53. And this Savior is going to be one who is going to bless all the nations, as we see in Isaiah 56. And not only that, that this Savior is going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth, as we see in Isaiah 60. John the Baptist is saying, I'm the one who's coming to point you to the one who's going to do all of that. He's going to be the Savior who is going to save God's people. He's going to be a suffering Savior. He's going to bless all the nations. And he is going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. The age that you are expecting is about to begin. I am the one pointing you to that one. Now, in the immediate context of understanding Isaiah 40 through 60... At one level, this prophecy is about Judah in the Old Testament's return from the Babylonian exile that they're under that happened in 538 B.C. And in that instant, there was God's servant, the Persian king Cyrus, who God used to allow the people of Judah to go home to their land. But that story is simply a John the Baptist story. It's a pointing story. The Old Testament, the role that John the Baptist is playing, as we've talked in other sermons, is the role of pointing to the Savior. An exile and return that John the Baptist is now announcing is going to happen at a much greater level through God's Messiah. Our exile, our exile from sin, our exile from our selfishness, our exile from Satan. It's an exile in which God's Savior has come to liberate all of his creation. And the one that's come to do it is about to appear on the scene. And John is saying... I'm the one pointing you to him. I've come to point you to the Savior who has now done this. A Savior who is going to save you in a much greater way than just saving you from the Egyptians. Or saving you from the Babylonians. Or even saving you from the Romans. 
a savior who will free you from those superpowers that hold you in bondage. Those powers of sin. A savior that will set you free to know God. He is the one that I've come to proclaim. He is the one that's greater than me. He is the one that I can't even untie his sandals. He is the one that existed long before me, as we talked about two weeks. It's that one that I come to testify about. So who am I? I'm not the one to follow. I'm not the one to put your hope in. I'm not the one to stake your life on. I'm not your savior. I'm not your Messiah. You know, one level, John has a great lesson for all of us in the church. Whether we look to people, pastors, worship leaders, coaches, counselors, sponsors, parents, or a new youth pastor candidate, they are not your saviors. And when we look to people as our savior, rather than to the savior they are trying to point you to, much frustration and burnout and disappointment will come. In the same way for those that are in certain positions in the church, pastors or worship leaders or deacons or elders or Sunday school teachers or missionaries or people on the refugee committee, ushers, greeters, or a new youth pastor. You, me, we're not the Messiah. We are not the ones who are going to save people or save the church. Our role is to point people to the Messiah. And the sooner we figure that out, much frustration and burnout and disappointment will be alleviated. John is a great testimony to remind us all at who we're looking to or who we are that it's all about Jesus. And so who is this Messiah? The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look there, the Lamb of God who <clears throat> takes away the sins of the world. That guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Right there, Jesus, he's the one who's the Lamb of God. Now this would have been astonishing to anybody who would have been there that day. We've heard this so many times, this phrase, Lamb of God, we almost have lost the shock value of it. And we aren't there in the context of the situation. This is a pretty ambitious claim for somebody in that community that everybody probably knew as the son of Joseph and Mary, to all of a sudden have some wild guy in the wilderness say, he, that guy right there, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That would have been crazy. People would have thought, what are you talking about? It, it would be like me coming and, and, and 
taking one of the kids that were sitting here and saying, this guy right here, he is going to be the next prime minister of Canada. This, this, this young person right here, this guy, he is going to be the new pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And you're probably thinking, what are you talking about? I taught him last summer at VBS. He was in my group. I'm going to be surprised if he graduates high school. You're talking about prime minister, pope, who, 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 that guy, Jesus. We all know Jesus. We went to school with Jesus. He's going to be the lamb of God. He is the lamb. What, take away the world's sin. What are you talking about? And then when you understand what a lamb is in that society, lambs were not pets like cats and dogs. A, a lamb wasn't something that uh, people cuddled with and uh, allowed them to sleep on the edge of their bed at night. Uh, lambs essentially served two purposes in Israel's history. They were for food and for clothing. You could get that from lambs. And also, even more importantly, they were used for sacrifice during worship. And so when you say that someone is a lamb... And you understand in their society how a lamb was used. You're saying this guy is the one that is going to clothe and feed us. And be some kind of sacrifice to God. For a people steeped in the Old Testament. At least three ideas would have come to mind. Regarding the lamb. First, there was the Levitical law written by Moses. That probably would have come to mind right away, where Moses says, when you become aware of your guilt in any of these ways, you must confess your sin. How do you do that? You bring to the Lord as a penalty for your sin a female from the flock, either a sheep or a goat. This is a sin offering with which the priest will purify you from your sin, making you right with the Lord. A lamb, a sheep, a goat, was used as an offering for sin. When you realized your sin, you bring this lamb as an offering for your sin. In a sense, the lamb takes the, your punishment for you. Also, uh, connected with Moses and Kind of a fitting theme for John the Baptist announcing a new age through a new exile. The lamb would have reminded the people of God's rescue from slavery in Egypt. This was almost the story of Israel. The Exodus story is for Israel is like our Good Friday and Easter story. It is the pinnacle story. The lamb would have reminded them of this story. In what happened is in making the point, God making the point that he was God and not Pharaoh. Even the Pharaohs all saw themselves as God. God brought about a final plague on the Egyptians. And that is that all the firstborns of Egypt were going to die. God was going to send an angel of death throughout the land and Every firstborn would die. In order for God's people to be protected, God said that what you need to do is take a lamb, 
kill the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, and paint your door frames with the blood of the lamb. And then go into your houses and you can eat the rest of the lamb as your supper that night. And then when the angel of the Lord comes throughout the land, every single door frame that it sees blood of a lamb on it, that door will be passed over by the angel of death. So no one in that household will die. It's where Jewish people to this day get their celebration of Passover from. The time that God passed over his people because of the blood of a lamb. So when John said, behold, the lamb of God, they would have thought of the Levitical law. They would have been reminded of this story also of Moses and the blood being smeared on the door frames and the people being passed over because of a lamb taking their place. But the lamb imagery also goes back further. It goes back to their founding father, Abraham. The father of all the Jewish people. There in that story, God asked one of the most ridiculous things he ever asked of someone in the Bible. Abraham had his one and only son from his wife, Sarah, by the name of Isaac. God promised that it was going to be through Abraham's son, Isaac, that he was going to bring about his promise. And then God says to Abraham, go and sacrifice your one son to me. A ludicrous request. But Abraham obeyed. And on his way to the place where he was going to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac was walking alongside of his dad and started to look around and noticed that they didn't have anything to sacrifice. Abraham didn't tell Isaac at this point that God had asked him to use his own son. And so what we read in Genesis is the boy saying to his father, we have the fire we have the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Abraham's words to his son are, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered. I have to admit, it's that line that is the line that is the only line that makes sense of this story for me. I don't know what was really going on in Abraham's mind, whether or not he was just kind of lying to his son because he didn't want to tell his son that, or if in some kind of faith, Abraham believed that there was going to be an intervention. But to me, that is the line that makes sense of the story because outside of that, uh, the whole idea of obeying God and sacrificing your own kid uh, seems more demonic than holy. And so he takes his son... He places him on the altar. He binds his son up. He takes the knife. He holds it up and he is about to plunge the knife into his own son Isaac as God has seemed to ask him to do. And then we read in that same chapter, all of a sudden an angel cries out, don't lay a hand on the boy. 
Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. At very least, there's more. But at very least, those three stories would have come to mind when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Somehow, this guy that John's pointing to is going to fulfill these stories. This one here is a Levitical sacrificial offering to atone for sin. This Jesus is a sacrificial covering protecting people from death. This Jesus is a substitutionary sacrifice of one life for another life. Jesus is fulfilling these Old Testament stories. These Old Testament stories that play the role of John the Baptist. These Old Testament stories that are not ends in themselves, but are all stories that point. Sacrifices that point. John the Baptist is saying that these stories, like me, are pointing to the true Savior. The true rescue from exile and slavery has come in Jesus. The true substitute, your life for someone else's life. The true rescue from sin and death has come in the person of Jesus. John the Baptist, the Old Testament is not the Messiah. John the Baptist and, and the Old Testament cannot save. That's why Paul was so emphatic about not going back to the Old Testament as if it can save. They're important, very important. John the Baptist had a very important role. The Old Testament is very important, but it must be remembered for its purpose. Its purpose is to point. Not to itself, but away from itself to Christ. This is what the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says very emphatically in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. A dim preview of the good things to come. Not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated over and over again, year after year, but they were never able to provide a perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided a perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead... 
those sacrifices in the old system were an annual reminder of people's sin year after year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This also is to remind us and and get away from the misnomer that people in the Old Testament were saved by sacrificing. They weren't. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All they were were pointers. People were saved in the old system or the new system all in the same way, by faith in the Messiah. They just had a looking forward faith to the coming of a Messiah. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. He is the Lamb of God. And he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, in the old system, you had to be sacrificing over and over and over again. And all it did is it reminded you of your sin. It didn't take it away. It just reminded you of your sin. Jesus came and his sacrifice once and for all no longer is there to remind us of our sin. It is there to take away the sin of the world. He sets us free. He sets us free from the Babylonians, from the Egyptians, from the Romans, in a much greater sense in the fact that he sets us free from the bondage of sin. That is what Jesus came to do. John the Baptist is merely the illustrator. But John says that Jesus even does one better than that. Not only does Jesus come and take away sin and bring forgiveness for all people who surrender themselves to him, but John says that Jesus also gives us new life. It's one thing to just have your sins forgiven, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He even gives us new life. And so John not only talks about the lamb... But in this same story that we read from the Gospel of John, we also are introduced to a dove. It's actually quite appropriate that this passage of Scripture fell on this Sunday, because if you look behind me, you will see the center banner is the banner of the dove, and it was moved to the center because today is Pentecost Sunday, the day that we remember the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. So a very good Sunday to focus on a passage of scripture that talks about the role of the Holy Spirit as we enter into Pentecost. See, John says that not only was the Old Testament and I and the lambs an illustration of the true lamb that was going to come and take away the sin of the world, but in the same way, I, John, baptized with water. But my baptism merely points to a greater baptism. My baptism isn't sufficient. My baptism isn't the end. My baptism is only a baptism that points to someone else, the Lamb of God, who is going to come and going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
When John the Baptist baptized Jesus, we read that John saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. Through this sign, God acknowledged to John and through John the Baptist to the rest of the world who Jesus was. And again, as I've said repeatedly, how do we know what the symbols in the New Testament mean? We go back to the Old Testament. You're, you're going to read so much better if you realize that every single picture, every single line, every single thing is rooted in the Old Testament to help us understand this so that we don't just take contemporary ideas and add them to pictures and images in the New Testament. So when we go back to the Old Testament, what do we find? Again, we go back to Isaiah. Isaiah that talks about this coming one, this Messiah. And there we read in Isaiah 11, out of the stump of David's family, that's King David, will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Who's the shoot that comes out of, of uh, that will grow out of David? The branch that grows out of the shoot of David? It's David's son, Jesus. Jesus is the new Davidic king. In fact, Jesus is the real Davidic king of whom David was only a shadow. David was a John the Baptist type of king pointing us to the real King David, Jesus. And how are we going to know who this son of David is? Who are we gonna, how are we going to know he is the one? You're going to know when one comes and the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon him. Isaiah picks this up again in chapter 42. Look at my servant. Whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring justice to the nations. And so as soon as Jesus came and John baptized him. And when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. John instantly would have remembered the prophecies of Isaiah. And said this is the one. This is the one. This is the son of David, the Messiah king who's come to rescue his people. This is God's servant. This is the one that God has anointed with his Holy Spirit. He has now come. He's the one I've been called to point to. The descent of the Spirit on Jesus marked him out as the new King David. The Savior, Messiah, promised by prophet Isaiah. And being filled with the Holy Spirit himself, Jesus now baptizes his followers in that same Holy Spirit. In fulfillment of the prophet Ezekiel. Who says that this is what this new one will come to do. Ezekiel says, God speaking through Ezekiel, then... I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I know that that is a very anti-Baptist thing that Ezekiel said. That he said sprinkle. I'm sorry, Isaiah said it. I mean, I mean, Ezekiel said it, not me. He didn't say, I will immerse you with water. But anyway, that's Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And then I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. 
That's what Jesus has come to do. John the Baptist could only baptize with water. But Jesus, the one that we see the anointing come upon, the Holy Spirit come upon, now is going out and he is baptizing us with the Spirit. And what does that baptism mean? It means that we're washed away. We're given new hearts. That's something that water alone can't do. I will take out your stony, stubborn hearts. I will give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. That's Pentecost. That's what the Holy Spirit has come to do. Jesus has not only come to be the sacrificial lamb and to take away the sins of the world, as if that's not good enough news, but Jesus has also come and been filled with the Holy Spirit so that once our sins are forgiven, we now become empowered to live in the Holy Spirit's righteousness. New hearts, new minds, free from sin, and free to live away from sin. So what does all this mean? It means that you've not only been forgiven, you've not only been rescued from death and slavery and exile, Jesus is transforming your life to live as a new person. I can testify to this in my own life. Uh, growing up, I used to be a, a very angry person. When I was in um, junior high school, I would get so angry at times, I would punch holes in walls. And uh, sometimes you don't always time those things right or hit the right spot and you hit the studs and I bashed up my hand pretty bad a few times. I remember times that I would uh, try to take out my anger on the family dog and, and kick the dog, beat up the dog, try to torture the dog, terrible things. I'd torture insects, um, beat up my little brother, and that was a little fun, but, but probably wasn't good anyway. Um, there were times I got so angry, I would take an axe, and I would just go out, we lived on an acreage, and I would just beat it against trees over and over and over again, just beat trees with this axe, a very angry person. But in high school, Jesus started taking control of my life. And What's interesting is as he began taking control of my life, as I began to get him know it more and more, uh, the anger started to just go away. Uh, my demeanor changed. It actually takes quite a lot to get me angry now. And even when I do get angry, I cannot remember the last time I've punched a wall or thrown something. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then God worked on my pride in college. Uh, interestingly, it was in college, not in junior high or high school. It was in college that my face broke out in this uh, terrible acne. Uh, it, it was so bad I had to go see a, a specialist, a faith spe faith face specialist that um, had to do all kinds of uh, spray my face with dry ice and peel things off my face so that it wouldn't scar up. And it was a very difficult time, particularly your first year of college, you're trying to make an impression, make new friends. I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. And God began to work through me with his spirit on helping me figure out what is my self-identity? Who am I? 
Who am I when, when I don't even like the way I look in the mirror? Where's my self-worth? And then as I've shared before, my last church, about halfway through my ministry there, I, I just got hit with panic attacks. When I was preaching, when even I was out on the bus, and I went through a whole bout with panic attacks and had to see a, a psychologist and really work. I actually thought my ministry was going to be done for a while there. I'm like, I can't preach anymore. I've got these panic attacks. And God used that time to have his Holy Spirit work in me to help me understand the importance of rest. And also to help me understand the importance of relying on God's strength and not my own strength. And once again, help me to work out where my self-worth lays. What if I can't be a pastor anymore? Am I still worth something to God? And God started working these things through me. That's Holy Spirit work. I can't say that I've reached perfection. Issues still pop up in my life. They're like some of those last entrenched ISIS fighters in Mosul. They're still there, it's pretty much defeated, but they're still there and they still pop their heads up once in a while. But I know that the victory is in Jesus' hands. And with the Holy Spirit's help, I press on to the promised land. And I less and less long to go back to Egypt. That's the Holy Spirit's work. You're not only set free from Egypt, set free from your sins because of the Lamb of God... But you begin to make the journey to the promised land and long for Egypt, your sinful ways, less and less. That's Holy Spirit work. And many in this congregation here can attest to the same thing. If we just had a testimony time. That as you grow and as you mature, mission becomes more important than money. Purity becomes more important than porn. Generosity becomes more important to you than greed. Empathy becomes more important than efficiency. This is Holy Spirit work. And it's what the Holy Spirit does in people who have been touched by God. Hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. So that now we live as more than conquerors and as ambassadors for God's new world order. Paul writes in Ephesians, he gave you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. He's given you that Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. You've not only had your sins forgiven, you've not only had the Lamb of Jesus stand in your place for you, but you've been given the Holy Spirit so that you can live victoriously over sin. Understanding all of this helps us to understand where we are in that Christian journey. It helps us navigate our everyday life. We as Christians are no longer in Egypt. We're no longer slaves to our sin. Jesus, the Lamb, has set us free from our slavery to sin, self, and Satan. And has baptized us with the Holy Spirit to change our heart and our life's orientation. But we also know that as Christians, we have not yet reached the promised land. The new heavens and the new earth. The promised lands that scripture talks about. 
We know that all of creation is moving towards that. This is even what the Jewish people in Jesus' day expected. William Barclay says the Jews had their dreams of the golden age. The age to come, the age of God, when the world would be God's world, when sin and sorrow would be done away with, and God would reign supreme. And we are still waiting for that promised land. We're no longer in Egypt, but we're not at that promised land yet. We are somewhere in between. But with the coming of Jesus, we are no longer in between as if we're wandering in the wilderness See, Jesus is not only the new David, but Jesus is the new Joshua. Joshua, in many ways, is the name Jesus. Joshua, the Savior. Joshua, the one in the Old Testament who led the people of Israel into their promised land as conquering warriors because that land belonged to them because God had given it to them. The new Joshua has come in Jesus. And we are followers of that new Joshua. So we're no longer wandering in the wilderness. Sin has been defeated. Self is giving way to loving God and loving others. Satan's armies are being crushed. We are following Joshua, the new Jesus, into the new promised land that is ours by rights. And so we already now begin to set things right in this world in anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth. We are the ones that charge into battle, setting things right in this world from broken relationships to sin issues to environmental issues to all things. Even though we know the fullness of it will not come till Christ comes again, we march into battle because that land, that new heavens, and that new earth are ours as an inheritance given to us by the Holy Spirit. That's how we live our lives now. No longer looking back to Egypt, but looking at the promised land that's just around the corner that we're already taking. And it's all there in picture form in the Old Testament. It's all there with John the Baptist pointing to it. The reality in Christ. All of his children following this Jesus into the new world order without sin, without death, and with his Holy Spirit, abundant life. John the Baptist said, I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Let's stand together and sing a couple songs about the Holy Spirit. <laughs>